Um, so, good morning. So, yeah, we've been doing a series of messages uh, through the book of Exodus. And uh, um, last week, John kind of went through a big portion of chapter four, and I began to read through the end of chapter four, and I thought, I have no idea what this means. This is too good to pass up. Have you ever been there when you read the Bible? Like, I have no idea what this means. This is too good to pass up. There's got to be some really good stuff hidden in here. Listen, the Exodus story, the whole thing, is so central to Israel's history that you can't actually talk about being an Israelite without this story. You can't actually talk about it. It isn't just a parable. In fact, throughout the, throughout the uh, Old and New Testament, it's the most quoted, it's the most referred to story. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the event when actually Israel becomes Israel. It's what constitutes them becoming who they are. They even mark time based on this event. If you look at 1 Kings 6, uh, it, it reads in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. That's amazing. The, the, the way that they counted time because of this event is similar to how we count time after the life of Jesus. It's like it's a transformative event kind of for who they are. And, and this thought impacted me this week as I began to study this. In my story, I distinctly remember a few evenings in the autumn of 1976 when I first began to encounter the living God. I was going through my own exodus event. I was coming out of a way of life. I, had, I was leaving a way of life that I had learned for the first 17 years, and I was stepping into a completely different kind of life following Christ. I realized I was leaving a kind of life where I was in bondage to my longings and my desires, thinking that if I could just fulfill my longings, my desires, if I could define who I am, that somehow I would be more free. I was leaving a way of life where the only resources I had were the resources that I brought to the table. Those are the only ones that I really had. It was a way of life where I honestly felt pretty alone. And I found myself over a few evenings reading through the scriptures, reading through the gospel of John, beginning to interact with some uh, church leaders and some, uh, a youth group uh, in my life, I found myself being invited into a very different way of life, a way, that was, a way of life that was so much bigger than what I thought existed, a way of life that was stunningly more beautiful. That's one of the things that first captivated my attention. I'd never read about a more beautiful life than, than the life of Christ, a life connected to the creator who deeply loved me and who is inviting me into an adventure that I'd never heard about before. So as we're going through this exodus, as we're thinking about this story that defines who God's people are, I wonder about you. Like we don't have time for us all to individually chat this morning. I kind of wish we did. Because I wonder, like, have you had an exodus like that? Is there like a before and after version of your life where you've encountered Jesus? For some of us, absolutely the case. And I would bet that for some of us here today, that's not the case. That hasn't happened yet. We're maybe exploring. We're thinking about this. Like, is this stuff real? Pastor Filter kicked in. Is this like real stuff? Is this something like really worth paying attention to? 
Do you have a story of Exodus in your life? The whole reason that I am here right now, the whole reason that I am a pastor slash artist slash goofy fellow that I am living in Duluth is because I want you to experience this. Like the goal of my life is to help you experience what we're talking about here today in terms of this exodus. I want you to learn about uh, and live deeply into a whole different kind of story that doesn't fit anywhere in the spectrum of how we talk about stories in our country today. And the book of Exodus is crammed full of extremely helpful pointers as we live into this new way of life. So as I said, we're in Exodus chapter four. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Exodus? It's pretty easy to find. It's the second book of the Bible, and we're only four chapters in, so you can find it. We're at the end of chapter four, and there's a transition coming in the story. Let me set this up. The first part of this has been kind of the story, the saga of Moses being delivered from Egypt, and then the second that we're transitioning into is Israel being delivered from Egypt. And the first part, Moses' deliverance, is actually a paradigm for understanding the second part. As you remember, the story starts off with Pharaoh. He's very concerned about the proliferation of the Hebrews. He's feeling threatened. He orders that all the baby boys be killed, and then finally all of them thrown into the Nile River. Moses' mom puts him in the river, but she places him carefully in a basket, in an ark. She floats him into the reeds, right? And then from there, he's rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh. And so that's chapter one, the first half of chapter two. God delivers Moses through the reeds from the death that Pharaoh wants to give him. Then as an adult, Moses crosses into the wilderness. He ends up at Mount Sinai where he meets God in the flames of a bush. That's chapters three and four. God reveals himself to Moses and then he commissions Moses into his service. God says, basically, I have a plan for you. I'm gonna send you back to Egypt. And so those events actually prefigure the whole rest of the book where again, we see a murderous Pharaoh who despises the Israelites and while trying to destroy them, is also trying to get whatever free labor he can out of them. And then God brings the people through the Sea of Reeds. He splits the water. They come out the other side in the wilderness. So we have Moses being delivered and commissioned. Then we have the Hebrews being delivered and commissioned. Moses meets God at Sinai. Then they all meet God at Sinai. God brings them into covenant. He dwells among them. He commissions them to be his representatives to the nations, offering every single one of us an exodus because of that. And so there's this beautiful symmetry between the story of Moses and the story of the whole nation. So today what I want to do is I want to tackle this really difficult passage that often gets ignored or left out of the story. It's right in the middle of the transition between these two sagas. So let me pause for a second before we open the passage. What do we tend to do with difficult passages? Like what do we tend to do with these? When we encounter difficult things in the Bible, what do we do? I don't know if you've tried reading the Bible yet. There are a lot of sections that are difficult to understand at the first pass. So sometimes we just ignore them. We just brush them aside. Or we Google it. And Google is so incredibly helpful when you're trying to understand ancient Hebrew scriptures. I mean, it's nothing more helpful on the planet. Right? 
Sometimes we go, I don't know why this is there, so la, 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 I'm just going to pretend I didn't see it. Sometimes, on the other side, we kind of hyper-focus on the difficulty, and we get so focused on the difficulty of a passage that we tend to ignore all the easy stuff to understand, like love your neighbor as yourself. Like, well, how can I do that? Because I don't understand what this, what's a cubit? I don't know what a cubit is, and so if I don't know that, then I can't love my neighbor, right? We, that, we tend to do that kind of a thing. Which, it struck me again this week, isn't that what we tend to do with some of the difficult things in our lives? We tend to just ignore them, la, 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 it's not there. And then you didn't winterize something properly. And so you're out there at the last minute, this may not have happened to me this week, before snow comes in the morning, (laughs) to get something winterized. What do we do with difficult things? things in our own lives. Sometimes we just ignore them. We sweep it under the rug. We try to pretend that nobody can see it. It's like a child playing hide and seek. I can't see you, so you can't see me, right? It doesn't work that way, though, does it? One of my favorite illustrations is we sweep so much stuff under the rug that you can't walk across the floor anymore without tripping. Emotionally focused, the thing that we just talked about, is kind of helps pull back the rug so that Jesus can address all the stuff you swept underneath it because it's causing you to trip every single time you walk across the room. It's incredibly helpful for that. Sometimes we need help pulling back the rug and we need a gracious place where people understand and can listen and can pray for us. Sometimes we do the opposite. We so hyper-focus on the difficulty that we miss the really good stuff in our lives. There's really good stuff in each of our lives, beautiful things that God has placed in our lives. And sometimes we get so focused on the difficulty that we lose those, maybe because we're medicating too much. Or maybe because we're hiding. I think God loves us enough that he wants us to dive into the difficult things and actually meet him there. So as I dove into this passage this week on Wednesday morning, I got so excited. There is so much really good stuff in this passage. Okay, so enough talking about that. My hope is that in kind of pressing through this, that we'll see some really good stuff that God has for us. This Exodus event for Israel addresses something we all wrestle with at different points in our lives. It addresses our identity. Who are we? Whose are we? Who gets to define our identity? Who gets to tell us who we are? And at the end of this passage, as Moses steps into Egypt, his identity is more secure than it's ever been. In this story, God's revealing himself. He's revealing his identity, his name and his character to Moses, to the Hebrews, to the entire world. And then throughout this Exodus event, Israel gets invited into that, into a whole new identity as the people of God living out the reality of God's presence in the world today. And so I'm praying as we look at this that God solidifies your identity as a follower of the resurrected Christ. All right, I'm going to pray, then we're going to read starting Exodus 4.18. If you have a Bible or you want to get there on your phone or be like Moses and get there on your tablet, (laughs) you can do that. Heavenly Father, 
We love you and thank you for your presence here. Would you speak to us in this passage today? Would you speak your heart to us? Would you, Holy Spirit, help to solidify our identity in you? And would you give us courage, Lord? I know that the Holy Spirit has dialed up maybe a difficult thing you've been ignoring. God, would you give us courage to kind of not sweep that under the rug, to hold that before you, even as we're listening to this? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, verse 21, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Gets a little intense, but that's not all the intense. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What? But Zipporah took a flint knife. I looked all over this week for a flint knife. I couldn't find one. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, touched it to Moses's, touched Moses's feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At the time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. That's a weird passage. Verse 27, then the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he'd commanded him to perform. So Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Let me just read a little bit more in the next chapter. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. All right. I think one of the things God's doing is he's solidifying identity. He's helping us to answer the question, who am I really? So here's my first thought. First thing we have to do, if we want to know who we are, we have to rest in the purposefulness of God. I love the way that Dr. Carmen Imes identifies that these four little scenes, these little vignettes, are a tightly constructed literary unit with an important function. First we have Moses and Jethro, then we have God and Moses, and next it's this strange emergency circumcision event, and then Aaron and Moses meet up and head back to Egypt. Sometimes we might think the author just got confused. Like there's all these little tidbits, I don't know where to put them, let's just throw them right in here. And while you and I might write a story like that, 
I think maybe God's more purposeful. What if this actually has a point? Let me just give us a bigger picture for a moment. What if God was way more purposeful in our lives than we often give him credit for? What if he's up to something beautiful every stinking single moment of your life? What if God's doing something really cool? I think that's what Jesus shows us. In every single moment, there's an opportunity to participate in a totally different way to live our lives. That's what Jesus actually did and empowers those of us who follow him by the Holy Spirit to do the same thing. So why do people think that these four stories are an important literary unit meant to accomplish a specific purpose? Well, remember that these authors write in a way that every phrase matters. <laughs> Papyrus was expensive. I'm joking. The ancient... Man, three people got that. Two over here and one way back there. <laughs> the ancient Hebrew literature, let me remind us, is known as meditational literature. It's meant to be read over and over and over again. It's written in a way to help you notice like themes and patterns and specific words. It not only narrates the story, but there's this constant repetition of patterns and words and themes. It's almost like the writer is giving you hyperlinks to like go back and remember something or go forward and remember something, right? They're, they're laying the groundwork to help you interpret future stories that are coming. And in doing so, we're being taught who God is, what his character is like, why we can trust him, and what it's like to live as the people of God dependent on him in our word. And there's so many words and phrases. I don't have time today to unpack all the things that tie these four stories together and then tie them to the past and tie them to the future. But there is a main point in this that I think is super applicable, right? And that's that God is really purposeful. So really quickly, uh, for the Bible nerds, some of you will be bored by this. Just stick with me. What kinds of things tie this together? First of all, the way that Moses refers to his father-in-law, verse 18, the way that Zipporah refers to Moses as the bridegroom, it's the same Hebrew word. It's, it means like kinsman. It's like blood relative to me. It's meant to catch your eye because he's not really a blood relative to his father-in-law Jethro. It's meant to like remember things that happened in Genesis and catch your eye here. The conversation that Moses has with his father-in-law and the next conversation he has with Jethro, so he has one here, the next conversation he has is in chapter 18 after this whole event of the Israelites being uh, going through the Exodus is over, there's these two bookend conversations with Jethro. That's meant to actually catch your eye. That frames the whole deliverance story. The way that verses 22 and 23 set up the firstborn of Yahweh with the firstborn of Pharaoh. That's actually meant to like catch your eye. That what's going on here is, is, is uh, I'll get to it more in just a second. The way that both Pharaoh and Yahweh sought to kill Moses. That's meant to catch your eye. I highlighted this a couple weeks ago. God uses both named and unnamed women to deliver Moses. And the story keeps going on. This time we know the woman's name, Zipporah. But without her, apparently, and the emergency circumcision, Moses is dead. And the circumcision is an anticipation of the Passover, where with the touching of blood to the doorposts, the firstborn are saved. Like there's so many things. It's almost like we need these stories in order to complete the series of events that happened to Moses and tie them into the series of events that's gonna happen in Israel. These stories tie them together, the deliverance. 
And the key point that's being decided for Moses is the key thing that will eventually, near the end of the book of Exodus, be decided for Israel. And it's this, who are you? Are you a person who bears the name of God? Are you someone that bears his reputation? Are you a people that bear his reputation? That's the actual thing for us today. Who do you belong to? What's your core identity? So with the idea of identity in mind, let's take these little scenes one by one. So here's the second point. It's a truth that's difficult to hear and incredibly freeing. We don't have what it takes at all. And God has chosen to work through us. That truth is so different from what our influencers on social media tell us today. You got this. You have everything it takes. The biblical narrative is, you don't got it at all. You don't got anything that it takes. And God has chosen to work through you. So in that sense, I guess you do kind of have what it takes. Right? Don't get confused. It's an incredibly difficult and freeing truth. We don't have what it takes, and God's chosen to work through us. Where do I get that out of this? Look at verse 18. Jethro goes to Moses. Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. If you've been following the story at all, you remember that God spoke very clearly to Moses about bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. He never suggested, hey, Moses, just go down there and do a welfare check. See if they're still alive. He never said that. Not once. Right? So why doesn't Moses tell Jethro what God's actually sending him to do? I wonder about that. How does Moses see himself here? Is he embarrassed about what God told him to do? We already know he doesn't think he's up to the task. He tried to disqualify himself multiple times. I wonder how often, for you and I, we legitimately realize that we're not up to the task. And because of that, we don't say what's real. We don't say what God might be actually inviting us to do in a given situation. What's interesting to me is Moses tells Jethro he wants to go do something that Moses could easily do. What he doesn't tell Jethro is what God told him, which is something that Moses can't possibly do. Why does Moses dial it down to something he can accomplish? I know why I do it. What about you? I do it because I feel like I'm overselling what I think I might be able to do because I'm embarrassed about what I might try to do. Like if I feel like God is saying, Michael, go pray for that person that you just pump in their gas on another pump, you know, and, and you know, just like, has, does God ever talk to you guys like that? Like you're, you're just like out doing your life, keeping your head down, trying to be a good introvert. And then God highlights somebody in another part of the grocery store and like, they're really hurting. Why don't you go reach out to them? And I'm like, I'm trying to just buy marshmallows. Leave me alone. I've never bought marshmallows. I don't know why that came to me. <laughs> Brenda buys the marshmallows for the grandkids. Uh, and, and then I'm like, you know, okay, I feel like I'm gonna leave the grocery store disobedient to God if I don't do something. And so I walk over and I'm like, Hi, and they're like, hi, Pastor Mike. And I'm like, oh, we've never met, have we? 
My name is Michael. Nobody calls me pastor, right? I'm just a dork. And I felt like God was doing something, and I'm supposed to pray for you. Is there anything going on in your life I could pray for right now? And it feels so embarrassing to do that. Do you guys ever get that? Or you just ignore it completely, or you just keep your head down completely. Because here's the deal. This new way of life that God's invited us into, there's all sorts of things like that that he constantly wants to invite us into. And it's actually kind of scary. And so what we do is we dial it down to something that we think we can do. We're not up to the task. Do you realize that anytime God invites you into something, here's a promise I have for you, you're not up to the task. He's not inviting you because you have it all together. The reason he's inviting you is he wants to work through you. He wants to participate with you. Your job is to basically show up and take a risk and then watch what he does in the midst of that. God doesn't invite us into things we can handle on our own. He invites us into situations where we need him. We want to work on our own. He doesn't work that way. In fact, here's the deal. You can't do real Christianity on your own at all. None of it. If you have reduced Christianity to something you can do on your own, you're not following Jesus, period. Mic drop. Christianity is something you can't do on your own. That's the whole deal. We're not invited to like try to make it happen on our own. And we're not also invited to just let go and let God. That's also not Christianity where God does all the work. The Apostle Paul really clearly counsels the church to stay in step with the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us stay in step with the Spirit. There's something like to stay in step with something, you have to pay attention. You have to stay in step with it. Anybody ever like taken dance lessons? Not me. Sorry, I can't. That's a bad illustration. I've never done it. Here's one. 1 Timothy 6. I love this. Paul is telling Timothy, but you, man of God, we read this on our Thursday morning small group, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. There's work for us to do. There's fleeing. There's pursuing. There's fighting a good fight. There's taking hold. There's work for us to do. And then there's work that only God can do. The best way to live your life, if you really want to follow the resurrected Christ, is to approach life from a place of complete dependence. It's when we're not dependent on God that we make our worst mistakes. In fact, as I think about like following Jesus in real Christianity, here's three words that help me a lot. Three words in terms of how I approach participating with God. First of all, I'm surrendered. My life doesn't belong to me. I was bought with a price, the Apostle Paul teaches us, Christ on the cross. And now God can spend your life in any way he wants. Your life is no longer your own. When Paul writes and he introduces himself in his letters, he said, I, Paul, a bond servant. I'm a voluntary slave to what God wants to do in my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm surrendered to him. Like, he gets to call the shots. Secondly, I'm dependent. In the same way Jesus talked about not being able to do anything on his own, um, uh, John chapter 5 read John chapter 5 Jesus says I can't do anything on my own I can only do what the Father is doing you and I can't accomplish the stuff God wants to accomplish without being dependent on him to actually do the work it's a partnership I have to get up off the couch 
I have to make myself available. I have to put myself in this situation. And then God shows up really powerfully in people's lives, right? We have to be dependent. And we're dependent not just on God individualistically. We're dependent on the community. Like, we can't follow Jesus without being dependent on one another. That was what communion was about just a minute ago. It's not an individual sport. And then thirdly, this will take some of you off guard. I'm tentative. The way you really know that it's God leading you in something is because he accomplishes that thing. The outcome glorifies him. I love this. One, one of the promises that God gave to Moses back in Exodus 3, he said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign that I sent you. And what does he say? When you brought the people out of Egypt, you're going to worship God on this mountain. God is saying, when it's all done, then you'll know it was me. And so there's lots of times in our lives where we think God might be telling us something, The way you know it was really God is because God showed up and it worked. That means I can be tentative with that. I can say, I think maybe God highlighted you across the grocery store and I'm supposed to pray for you. I just say, I think that. If they say, no, thank you, I go, okay, cool. I don't have to force it. One of the ways I know it's God is they're like, oh my gosh, I was hoping somebody would pray for me today. I'm like, you were? Then why are you out shopping? (laughs) There's places where you go to get prayer, right? You could just stop by the vineyard. There's people there. They're drinking coffee. They'd love to pray for you. Rather than us saying, thus says the Lord, you need to do this, I just say, this might be the Lord. Can I pray for you? And one of the ways I know it's God is God shows up and he begins to do things in their life. Does that make sense? Surrendered, dependent, and then tentative. I don't have to be manipulative or controlling and all that. He confirms it through community. He confirms it through his actions along the way. So Jethro says, go, wish you well. That was like the first line of the passage. I have found in family leadership and church leadership, when God's up to something, I don't have to force it. When he's doing it, he actually makes it really clear to the people in my life. I'm going to tell a story about the art reception last week that I don't have time to. How might God be inviting you to kind of follow his example in leading and being dependent and surrendered to him? How might he be leading you in that? All right, third point. You know what? Forget that. I'm going to go back and do the second point. I want to tell this story. If this takes a little bit longer and you have to sit in that green chair a little longer... You'll live. (laughs) All right, so this past week, uh, I don't know if any of you walked down the hallway or if any of you even like art, but I hung about 100 pieces in the gallery right out there. Partly out of obedience to something that I thought God was telling me to do. In this season of my life, to lead as much from the point of view of being an artist as I am being a pastor or a leader in this community. And I've had, over the past uh, few years, I've had several people suggesting that I do like a show in our gallery. I hadn't done any kind of a solo show for like 25 plus years. I was a little embarrassed because I felt like it was too much attention on me. I was uh, a little nervous because I just hadn't put my work out there for a long time. I'd just do it and put it on my wall at home and really enjoy it a lot. Um, But I felt like I was supposed to lead in a, uh, a, a generative 
creativity, meaning, meaning a, a generous um, overflow of creativity of stuff that God had been doing in my life. So I worked a lot over the past couple years producing the body of work that is on display. My studio, where I work, both uh, here, I converted part of my office here to a studio, and I took one of my old children's bedrooms at home. That's a place of worship and prayer for me. That's like a really sacred space. And when I kind of crossed this threshold to begin to do that kind of work, I spend quite a bit of time in prayer, and I'm asking God kind of what to do and how to, how to move ahead. And then I do a lot of painting. At the reception last week, I was more than a little stunned at at how um, uh, a few, a handful of people experienced the presence of God while looking at the work. There's a few people who had powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit as they were just looking at the work that I had made. And that, and I was just, I was stunned at that because I experienced that, but most of the time you put artwork on the wall and people just walk by and go, hmm, okay, hmm, that's blue, hmm. You know, and they kind of move on. But when people take time to actually slow down a little bit, they began to have some really powerful experiences with some of that. And it was the work that, most of the work that, ha that happened with was work that was more experimental to me, that I was really trying to listen to the Lord and do something with, not, not only just painting something I really enjoyed. And so it was, it was pretty powerful how I kept tentatively taking steps of obedience painted every day for the last couple of years and, um, and, and then steps of obedience to show that. And, and I wonder how God might be inviting you to follow that kind of an example. And I think there's all sorts of beautiful examples like that in our community. There's uh, families in our community that felt like the lead from God to foster parent um, or, or volunteer like at the Women's Care Center or uh, uh, serve at the winter warming shelters the last year, and that's coming up again this year for those who are houseless. There's lots of work to be done in our community. There's really beautiful examples of people who don't have what it takes, and then they, they just show up, and then God meets them and really empowers them. And, and I love the way that God takes something that you're actually pretty good at, and then he empowers it even more. And, and I just, I don't know, I just wonder, what might God do in us as a community as we keep taking steps in that direction to do that more and more? Does that make sense? Okay, next point, third point. God's always at work behind the scenes, always at work. This next section about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the death of the firstborn sons, I'm going to save a lot of that discussion uh, for a couple weeks. The phrase about Pharaoh's heart being hardened comes up several times as we walk through the various plagues. It's a really cool discussion. You don't want to miss it. And the whole firstborn son thing, I'm going to cover that in more detail next week. But for now, what I want to do is I want to highlight how God is kind of pulling back the curtain for Moses, and he's showing that he's working behind the scenes on a much bigger project. There's a much bigger project coming up. Next week, we're going to talk about how the battle that's going on between God and Pharaoh isn't just a battle about his people Israel. It's a battle between deities, the true God and a false God. There's a contrast between an authentic deity and his chosen people, their firstborn, with a false deity, a human pretending to be divine, and his people, and eventually his firstborn son. It isn't just about slavery or ethnic or racial tensions. That's all there too. It's a conflict between the one true God and a human pretending to be God. It's gonna be really intense. That's for next week. And God is working behind the scenes on the whole thing. 
So for today, when you don't notice that God's working behind the scenes, when you can't see it, when you see evil actively flourishing, never forget that God's at work. Psalm 121, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber or sleep. Yahweh never sleeps. He's still on the throne. And so no matter what you see going on around you that worries you, in your own life or in the world, he never slumbers. Okay, four. Expect more than one really helpful identity crisis in your life. They keep coming. There's this weird emergency circumcision event, and I think it's all about identity. Who is Moses really? We got so many questions. Like, what's the actual crisis that leads God, who has just called and commissioned Moses to go deliver his people, now he wants to kill him? Like, what's going on? And why is an emergency circumcision the solution to this crisis? And how does Zipporah know what to do? It's such a weird story with so many unanswered questions for you and I. And good news is the Hebrew text is even more unclear. Believe, believe it or not, the English translators tried to clear up the confusion. But verse 25, the Hebrew text, Zipporah took a flint knife, that part's true. And it just says in the Hebrew, cut off his foreskin and touched his something with it. We don't know whose foreskin got cut off or who got touched or where they got touched because the, the words for feet and genitalia aren't that different. Like we just don't know what got touched. The Hebrew isn't clear about any of that. Are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> Imagine me with a flint knife standing up here, what I wanted to do. What the heck's going on? A little historical context. Moses would have been circumcised, most likely, as an Egyptian growing up in an Egyptian household. At puberty, Egyptians were circumcised, but it wasn't a circumcision of the covenant of Abraham. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was typically Egyptian. So here's an interesting thought. When you look back at when Moses gets to Midian, Exodus 2, I think we have it on the screen, they're talking about where Moses comes from, and this is what gets said. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. We're not told that with his father-in-law and with his wife, he ever identified as a Hebrew. Moses, who are you really? What story are you living into? What we do know is that his sons were probably not circumcised, so perhaps he was on the fence with his identity. Was he really part of the covenant people of God? Was he ready to be fully identified as part of the people of God? Or was Moses trying to live in both worlds? See how intensely practical this gets right away? His sons weren't circumcised. They wouldn't be part of the community. Genesis 17, this is my covenant with you, God tells Abraham, and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you should be circumcised. He goes on in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To not have that physical mark on your body meant that you were not part of the people of God. That was God's covenant with Abraham. Some of you are like, that's a weird covenant. Okay? We're not studying Genesis right now. We're studying Exodus. There's really good stuff about that, right? So Zipporah, by circumcising her sons, is bringing their family into compliance with God's covenant. Like she's the one rescuing the whole family. And then by touching Moses, she's reenacting his circumcision so it's no longer just an Egyptian thing. 
And her statement, you're the bridegroom or you're a kinsman of blood, could be her declaration that now she's saying, I'm included into this covenant as well. We are all the people of God. So she steps up, and her ritual act means that they're no longer outsiders from God's covenant made with Abraham. They now belong as a part of God, the people of God. And then we don't hear about her or her kids again until chapter 18. But she plays a role in preparing Moses to return to Egypt as a full-fledged member of covenant community. She plays the role in that. And I love the way that when God first called Moses, he didn't dial any of this up. But as things went along, the heat gets turned up. When Jesus first calls the disciples, he doesn't dial up that they're going to have to die for him. He just says, come follow me, see where I live. There's this thing as we follow Jesus where the heat gets turned up and every single time it does, you and I have an identity crisis. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? I thought it was I just pray a prayer and I come to some place where there's a cross and you guys sing songs in a karaoke weird style. No, he owns your life. He bought your life. There's so much more to it that he's constantly inviting us into. Side note, it's really interesting to me how God in Exodus has used women every step of the way, not the men. God used women to deliver Moses from Pharaoh and from Egypt and then back to Egypt. His mom, his sister, the midwives, Pharaoh's daughter and her servants, Zipporah, his wife. The men are mostly unnamed bystanders. Pay attention to that. We humans tend to discount people for lots of reasons. And we almost never discount ourselves unless it's like false humility. God uses everybody. And God especially works through those that we tend to discount. And I love the, the midwives worked within their own ability. I mean, the, all of them, they worked within their own ability. The midwives didn't become warriors. They followed the ways of God and participated with what God was doing. Okay, back to the circumcision really quick. Look at it this way. Moses' identity has to be solid before returning to Egypt. If there's even a hint of identifying as an Egyptian, this is not going to go well for him. Moses' family needed to be incorporated into the covenant God made with Abraham. And God encounters them on the way as if to say, I need to know where you stand. We need to figure out your identity because this next stage, this next stage, if you're uncertain about who you are, where your allegiance lies, this next stage is not going to go good. It's really interesting. You're meant to reflect back to, talk about hyperlinks, things that happened with Jacob in Genesis 32. You're meant to reflect forward now to things that happened with Balaam in Numbers 22. Without this little weird story of identity, we have a huge question mark hanging over Moses' head. The essential, this is, this is essential in making sure that Moses knows, knows who he is and who he identifies with when he goes back. He's becoming secure, and it's framing the deliverance of Moses and the deliverance of the entire nation. God's mission for Israel, God's mission for his people, God's mission for the church is that they should live as the people of Yahweh in the midst of all the other nations, bearing God's name in worship and prayer in their daily lives, and then they walk in the way of the Lord. That's why God chose them in the first place, in Abraham, so they could ultimately bring redemption to all the nations. What about you? Where's your identity today? Are you trying to live in a couple different worlds? 
you're invited by God to become a people he can trust to bear his name. And the truth is that once you surrender your life to Christ, you are accepted in Christ. You're adopted as a child of God. You're justified by faith in Christ, redeemed, forgiven of your sins with direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. You're accepted. You're also secure in Christ. Absolutely nothing can separate you from God's love. Confident that what God has begun, he will continue in your life. He'll finish it. You're hidden with Christ, sealed and secure. And then he's the one that makes you significant. He calls you to be salt and light in the world. He chooses you to bear lots of fruit. He says that you are his beautiful work of art, his poem, literally, in Ephesians 2.10. God's co-worker who brings reconciliation to others. But maybe like Moses... You're trying to walk in a couple different worlds. You're saying, how can I follow God and still keep the respect of all my peers who don't follow God? How do I actually do this Jesus thing in a way with all the people who don't do this Jesus thing think I'm amazing? That's like trying to walk in a couple different worlds. We are invited to follow Jesus with our whole lives, with absolutely everything. And so here's the question. I think it's time to decide like who you are and who you want to be. There came this like crisis moment as Moses and Zipporah and the kids are headed back to Egypt. I think God wants to bring that moment about for our lives not just like in a pretend way in a church service, but in a really real way in your life. And so once you guys stand up, I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna ask us to respond to God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for the way that you love us, that you welcome us, that you invite us in. And there's probably a few of us in the room or even online right now in this moment that we've actually never taken that first step of just, I want to follow God. Jesus, if this is real, I want in. That's how it starts for a lot of us. If this is real, I want in. And so I'm going to lead us through a really simple prayer of surrender. And if you've never prayed this, I just invite you to pray it with me. By the way, for those of you that have prayed it a, a lot, I find it really helpful to pray it and remind myself who I am and where I've come from and where I'm going. So a simple prayer of surrender could be something like this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I surrender myself to you. I actually want to know your love and your grace and your mercy in my life. So I submit to you as Lord and King. Thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the way that 
my sins are forgiven because of your work on the cross. And thank you for the new life that you offer me through your Holy Spirit because of your resurrection. Would you fill me with your presence? Would you do that work of changing me from the inside out? I want to follow you. I want to step into that completely new, different way of life. Where I'm in partnership with you to bring your healing to the rest of the world. That's a prayer of surrender. You can use lots, lots of different kinds of words. There's nothing magical in the words, but that's the thing that we're doing. If you're in the ministry team, could you make your way up front? If you prayed that prayer with me for the first time, I'd love for you to come up front and receive some prayer. And we have a little Bible and packet of stuff that we'd love to give you to help you grow as a follower of Jesus. So if you prayed that prayer kind of for the first time, I'd love for you to come up and get some prayer today from these guys. And then secondly, for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, and maybe you find yourself with a foot in either camp, you find yourself trying to be accepted by the Egyptians and somehow participate with what God's doing, I really believe God is inviting you into a beautiful crisis moment where you declared this is who I am through and through. And I think pretty much every single one of us could respond in this moment. Because there's not a time in our lives where we kind of grow beyond being insecure about the things that God's inviting us into and whether we have what it takes and can do it. We don't. He does. And so, if you've been finding yourself insecure about that, finding yourself with a foot in both camps, would you come forward right now and get some prayer? There's some folks that would just love to pray with you about that. It's a constant struggle for all of us. There's stuff that God wants to do in our lives. And there's things that, because we're trying to live in the middle, that we don't get to participate in. We long for this to happen. We long for these things to take place. And because we're trying to like keep everybody happy or keep as few people as possible mad at us, I mean, from being mad at us, we never take a step out. I think God wants to like rattle our cages a bit. And so Holy Spirit, would you give us courage to respond to you right now, even in this moment? Would you give us a courage? Come, Lord. If you find yourself with a foot in both camps, come on up here right now. Let's get some prayer. These guys are going to lead us in worship for a little bit. Hang out in here as long as you want to. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard and tackling a really difficult passage. It's fun.